All right, welcome back. Week 10 of 11. A couple of weeks, we can fill this room back up. Start something fresher and lighter and easier. That'll be good. Uh, today will be a bit different. Uh, we may not have time for any comments. Uh, maybe we'll have some of them. I was hoping to have two classes for this subject, but I only have one. Tim and Mark talk too much. So there's where we're at. Um, particularly if you didn't do your homework. Well, time to do a pop quiz. I told you to go read the statement on social justice and the gospel. So if you, if you uh, read that in full, then you can talk. Um, but do raise your hand and stop me if there are any questions in the middle. And I do hope there are, there's time at the end. But um, we're going to jump into it a little quicker than normal. Guy, would you mind opening this up in prayer? Dear Father, I have a huge thank you for drawing this together this morning to uh, study your word uh, together, Father. We thank you that you um, are a just God, and justice, uh, the word justice, uh, describes one of the beautiful facets of what we enjoy in you. And so, Father, as people who uh, have been called according to your purpose, would you be pleased to be with us in our conversations, that you might give us wisdom on how we might um, extend the good news of Jesus Christ throughout our community and our thoughts and our words, and in this class's case, our actions, to give us wisdom to see how it is that we would have us honor you and uh, love our neighbor. Amen. Now, I know for some of you listening online, um, the discussion is hard to follow sometimes online as well. People don't have the handouts or see the whiteboard, the interaction. Realize if you do listen to this online, some of those links are actually handouts. So you can look for those. Um, so on the board is kind of a, the framework I've been using. Social justice advocates on the left, skeptics on the right. And I'm trying to put evangelicals in the middle there together along a spectrum. And then I've been trying to I've, I've at least mentioned that there's a hard line on the left and the right, where at some point you're outside of evangelicalism, you're outside of orthodoxy. And today, that's we're going to kind of focus there. I've been spending a lot on the nuances in the middle, but today I'm going to look at um, trying to help define a little bit more where those borders should be, where we should be a little more authoritative, uh, more skeptical in both directions, where at some point... You can be a social justice advocate and be way outside the scriptures. And it's something we shouldn't really entertain. It shouldn't. Now, we still want to evangelize people like that, but we're, we're definitely in the realm of evangelism at that point and not fellowship. Same with on the right. If you have an indifferent, a cold heart to justice, just as Guy prayed, that's not scriptural. And so just to know where that is. And obviously in the middle, I have been trying to take very much a neutral stance on exactly what doing justice in your individual life would be, where you feel the church should be involved. We have a lot of diversity in that. And I'm advocating that we should allow that diversity in the body. Just arrive to your conclusions biblically. That's, that's all I'm really struggling for. Um, so I only have some experts there, excerpts there from this statement, uh, sometimes called the Dallas Statement. So what happened, again, as a review, January 2018, there was a conference called the MLK 50 Conference. And so Gospel Coalition, a lot of people we talk about around here, were involved in that. Um, a lot of Southern Baptist leaders, to give a specific denomination. 
And it's kind of, in my world, the people I follow, mom and dad are fighting. Some of my heroes were on that stage, and immediately the backlash from other heroes uh, have been going at it ever since. And so there have been conferences going back and forth for the last year and a half. Well, last September, really August, uh, a group of 20 men met, maybe men and women, 20 people met in Dallas uh, and formulated this statement that you can find online and went through many drafts. And what you'll find is this statement are definitely guys over here. Some would say have gone over the line. They're definitely on the right side, maybe as far right as you can go. And some would say too far right. And so, and then on the second half, we're going to look at critical theory, critical race theory, which at least the elements I'm talking about are over the line. And perhaps the whole theory. That's up for debate. So first, let's talk about this Dallas statement. Here's part of the intro. You don't have this, so just listen up. And of course, you can bring it up on your phones right now and read this. In view of questionable sociological, psychological, and political theories presently permeating our culture and making inroads into Christ's church, we wish to clarify certain key Christian doctrines and ethical principles prescribed in God's word. I did not bring my glasses. Clarity on these issues will fortify believers and churches to withstand an onslaught of dangerous and false teachings that threaten the gospel, misrepresent scripture, and lead people away from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Specifically, we are deeply concerned that values borrowed from secular culture are currently undermining scripture in the areas of race and ethnicity, manhood and womanhood, and human sexuality. The Bible's teaching on each of these subjects is being challenged under the broad and somewhat nebulous rubric of concern for social justice, in quotes. If the doctrines of God's word are not uncompromisingly reasserted and defended at these points, there is every reason to anticipate that these dangerous ideas and corrupted moral values will spread their influence into other realms of biblical doctrines and principles. We grieve that. We know we are taking a stand against the position of some teachers whom we have long regarded as faithful and trustworthy spiritual guides. It is our earnest prayer that our brothers and sisters will stand firm on the gospel and avoid being blown to and fro by every cultural trend that seeks to move Christ, the church of Christ, off course. And so these guys, the signers of the statement, um, think that a lot of the social justice, the stuff they're talking about is over the line. They, the, the quote, social justice that they're attacking is stuff that they, because it's outside of orthodoxy, is a threat to the gospel. And they, they feel we're no longer in this realm. We're no longer talking about Christian philosophies. We're talking about secular philosophies. Now, at the same time, they recognize that some of the people there, some of the things they're attacking will necessarily attack people who they find in the camp. But they're warning people over here, you're going too far. Your secular philosophies are creeping in. And, and they're wanting to be a warning to them. Um, but because names are gone and the, and the Twitter feed, the fights are going, it's become very personal. And that's why there's a lot of, of vitriol in it. Now, just as you don't care about my Southern Baptist circles, but among Presbyterians, you're all over the place here. You've got Tim Keller over here. You've got um, Sproul, I think, would have signed it. His widow did. I think League of Nurses supported the statement. You've got people like Kevin DeYoung, who have not signed it, but have not spoken out so clearly against it. And so within our, our own denomination, and then in other denominations, you have people all over the place. And that's why you have heroes. You have brothers and sisters, and, and they're at odds, and it's a little uncomfortable. Now, there's some things in the statement I don't think any of us would have any problem with. There's some obvious things there. 
All truth claims and ethical standards must be tested by God's final word, which is scripture alone. We've been talking about being biblically faithful. Um, we deny that God-given roles, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, religion, sex, or physical condition, or any other property of a person either negates or contributes to that individual's worth as an image bearer of God. We talked about knowing your identity in Christ. As an image bearer, all people, and then particularly as a Christian, that that, that identity ought to be consume everything else. Ought to be the most important thing in your mind. God requires those who bear his image to live justly in the world. So, the statement also says, maybe not as defined, but there is a realm where you are being unjust. You're being indifferent in the world. And that is ungodly as well. And we have to be there. So now, I think all these are on your handout. So just with respect, now there's 14 affirmations and 14 denials. That's how these statements go. There's a much longer intro in there. There's a whole historical background of how it came to be. But I just pulled out pieces that, things that we've talked about a lot, and we've, I've been neutral on, but you'll see where these signers stand on these issues. Uh, we deny that true justice can be culturally defined, or that standards of justice that are merely socially constructed can be imposed with the same authority as those that are derived from scripture. And this is an important thing. Just because someone throws the label justice on it, doesn't make it just in God's eyes. Um, just because it's a popular movement, We've got to resist just wanting to kind of be in the crowd, uh, virtue signal, and just really those are empty words, empty phrases, like um, Jesus warns against. Don't just utter empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Number two, all human relationships, systems, and institutions haven't been affected by sin. Now I find this interesting because I think a lot of people on the right are accused of not accepting systematic oppression, be it racism, sexism, or whatever. And the signers of the statement accept, now, again, maybe they don't define it as much as we want, but they do accept that systems and institutions can be affected. And so I think we should all agree and be able to agree that it's none of this is merely individual. We can't merely look after my individual life, my individual actions, but we all live in community. And this side, the left side, often accuses the right side of being hyper-individualistic, right? and just worrying about yourself, um, and not worried about the systems that you're involved in, and being able to influence those, and having your eyes open to see where systematic oppression might, might exist. And, the, and if it does exist, and you're part of that system, it doesn't mean you're guilty, but it can mean that you're responsible going forward. Number three, we deny that political or social activism should be viewed as integral components of the gospel or primary to the mission of the church. Though believers can and should utilize all lawful means that God has providentially established to have some effect on the laws of a society, we deny that those activities are either evidence of saving faith or constitute essential part of the church's mission given to her by Jesus Christ, her head. And we've talked a lot about this. There is absolutely a spectrum among evangelicals of what, it's, it's not so much a binary, it's, it's more of a priority at what point, as you go left, 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 and make social justice issues or any kind of social concern more of a priority, at what point are you losing your focus on your primary mission? I think all evangelicals would agree that the primary mission is evangelism, discipleship, right? Maturing the body of Christ. The question is, does it stop there? The question is, do... And then, so the right side of the board would absolutely be, we're going to preach on a Sunday morning, 
and I'm going to preach to you individual to go be just in your life. And, the, and I, I think someone can absolutely be faithful and hold to how they see the word of God. And, and any, any movement to the left here would be practically a threat that we want to lose our focus. And certainly at some point that would be true, right? At some point you get to social gospel. At some point you get to feeding the poor and not preaching the gospel. And, and Keller is very much adamant against that group as well. If you're a secular social justice warrior, you're very much not into personal righteousness and personal holiness. Um, you're just kind of grabbing justice labels to feed your own worldview in your own world. Um, and so, but we have a lot, a lot of discussion in here. Well, should our church have a ministry that we support? Just one. Should, should we have something that we as a church talk a lot about as a local church? Or maybe it's as a denomination. We want to support things that the denomination would do. Or maybe it's just parachurch organizations. We protect the, the elders ruling the church at Spring Meadows. We don't want to bog them down. And we don't assume that they necessarily have the socioeconomic gifts, right, or cultural background to do a ministry. But we would talk a lot about a parachurch that we would partner with other churches. Um, or if you're a big enough church, you can handle it yourself. Or should you see your church more as a parish and you're, you know, Tim would be a pastor to a local area if they wanted or not. You know, there are all sorts of views out there. Uh, and so your view on the role of the church in the culture, social justice aside, is going to play into what you think the proper role of the church is. Um, Al Mohler says it. He says he could be a happy member of John MacArthur's church, who would be way over the right, or Tim Keller's church way on the left. On this subject, there probably couldn't be more polar opposite and yet be evangelical. They both have the primacy of the gospel. And they both are trying to live faithfully for what they think the, church, uh, the Bible demands of their church. Uh, let's see, number four. We affirm that virtually all cultures, including our own, at times contains laws and systems that foster racist attitudes and policies. Now we, I often, like I said, I try to read the Bible through the lens of all Christians at all times and all places. It's impossible because I am product, a child of my own culture. I mean, just phrases and historical context, personal lived experience, filters, and it, there's no way around that. Um, but I do try to read the New Testament, well, all the Bible. What, what would this mean to all cultures? Um, it, you know, some of these discussions would be meaningless in another context, or they wouldn't be very important. Um, at the same time, I'm, I'm hoping that we we are prepared for real discussions in our real 21st century Las Vegas American lives uh, and be ready for it. But every culture, there's, there's, no, there's no neutral culture out there. And I think as Christians, we have to say the closer a given culture is to the Bible, then that's a better culture. That, now, that's anathema to the left side here. You know, that all cultures are all the same or all perspectives are the same. No, we have an objective standard. And while we are influenced by our perspectives... Perhaps this side undermines the, the idea of perspectives and lived experience. Um, we have to know that we're influenced by that, and yet we're still after an objective standard, right? That's, that's our goal, at least. And our culture has certainly um, fostered racist attitudes and policies and, and other types of justice issues. And I don't, I don't know why we would be so quick to deny that or to run from that. I, I don't understand why if we happen to be in a culture that has poor attitudes that we wouldn't openly admit that. I think we get defensive sometimes. Uh, 
All right, number five. We deny that only those in positions of power are capable of racism or that individuals of any particular ethnic groups are incapable of racism. We'll talk about this when we get to critical theory, but that is very much an unbiblical idea. Now, there's a reality that the racism of a power group, those in power, will perhaps matter more. Practically speaking, it will have more effects, and there could be more oppression from that. But at a heart attitude, everyone is capable of racism. The poor are capable of greed as much as the rich, right? Um, these are heart issues, and we want to be pastorally sensitive, but also in the way of pastoring people and letting them see, you might be right on your issue that you're rambling against, but your heart is wrong here. We want to deal with your heart. I want God to deal with my heart. And so we would never want to talk about heart issues like racism or greed as an issues thing or a people group thing. We are all sons and daughters of Adam. You know, and we need a savior. Number six, we emphatically deny that lectures on social issues or activism aimed at reshaping the wider culture are as vital to the life and health of the church as the preaching of the gospel and the exposition of scripture. Historically, such things tend to become distractions that inevitably lead to departures from the gospel. Now, the left side of the board here within evangelicalism will, will not agree with that statement. They think that there is a way to do activism. There is a way to engage the culture without slipping to social gospel. They admit that has happened in the past. And again, backing up one more, remember at the turn of the 20th century was kind of the, the enlightenment led to social gospel. That's where we kind of jettisoned miracles and in Christianity was all about social issues. And it was fundamentalism that flopped all the way to the other side and said, nope, we're not going to deal with the social issues. We're going to deal with the fundamentals of the gospel, justification, sanctification, salvation, heaven's all we care about. And it was evangelicalism that came up in the middle of the 20th century to say, well, let's strike a balance here. Let's not jettison all social issues. And so that's where we are over the last 50 years, trying to figure out what does evangelical mean. And that term is kind of jelly. It's all over the place. But um, that's why we're still in this kind of debate. We're trying to figure out, figure out what is the right, right role of the church and as a Christian. All right. Specifically the reparations, which we talked about last week. We deny that other than previously stated connection to Adam, any person is morally culpable for another person's sin. Although families, groups, and nations can sin collectively, and cultures can be predisposed to particular sins, subsequent generations share the collective guilt of their ancestors, only if they approve and embrace or attempt to justify those sins. Before God, each person must repent and confess his or her own sins in order to receive forgiveness. We further deny that one's ethnicity establishes any necessary connection to any particular sin. For instance, what is said, even by evangelical leaders, is that people sometimes need to repent of their whiteness, right, as a, of a group identity. Now, so Keller would clearly not agree with this paragraph, not on that statement. He, as I tried to say last week, he would promote the idea of a generational repentance, a generational culpability and a generational repentance. Still unclear if he applies that specifically to reparations. I didn't find that this week. Um, but he he would not he would he would say the statement is hyper individualistic. That this is true as well as we need to be concerned about generational. All right. So now here's the things that are the most controversial in this in the statement. And again, why someone signs a statement or not is not necessarily for the content. So don't don't use that as a litmus test. I think actually. 
Keller and Moeller and DeYoung probably agree with 85 to 90% of this, no doubt. Um, they might just not agree with the statement in general. But I think these are the statements that I think, from what I can ascertain, that people have a problem with better, are the most divisive and, and would probably be the main reasons people would not sign this statement, even if they agreed with most of it. Number one, we deny that postmodern ideologies derived from intersectionality, radical feminism, and critical race theory are consistent with biblical teaching. And that's what we're going to talk about in a bit. What is critical race theory? When I first read the statement, I'm like, never heard of that. I don't know what to agree or not, because I don't know what that is. Maybe it's a shame that they didn't define what they meant by it, but, you know, limited space. And we'll talk about intersectionality. Number two, we deny that human sexuality is a socially constructed concept. We also deny that one's sex can be fluid. We reject, quote, gay Christian as a legitimate biblical category. Now, the statement... Uh, and much of the vitriol is mostly on race issues, but the statement does cover quite a bit. This is a this is a big one, I find. I mean, I personally, I, I'm not sure why we're dividing so much over terminology. Um, are there gay Christians? You know, depends what you mean by that, right? Um, such were such were some of you, but now you've been washed, transformed by the blood of Christ. So we'd say we could say no. There's not gay Christians in the sense that. Someone who's actually participating, we would discipline. Now there's time for repentance and all that, but um, but it's someone who has same-sex attraction. I, I will firmly say absolutely. Um, and so, what is meant by saying gay Christian? So a lot of people who wouldn't sign it see the statement saying you deny the humanity or the Christianity of people who have these attractions. But I don't think the statement guys would say that. Maybe they would choose to say it differently. I don't know. Um, but a lot of that vitriol is on terminology, which I think is unfortunate. Now, there is a debate on can someone be transformed and changed with those same-sex attractions. Some people look at 1 Corinthians 6 to say that, um, yes, of course they can be changed. It says you can be transformed. And others would say, no, you know, this person is unfortunately going to live a life of singleness, and there's, they're never going to change, and so quit trying to get them to change. So that's a, a legitimate debate I think we could have. But again, I'm not sure why... I don't know. I, it seems too divisive to me on that one issue, so maybe there's something I'm missing. Um, I mean, you could go to the debate on, too, if it's bio genetic or biological or not. We talked about that when we talked about this series. All right, number three. We affirm God made all people from one man. Though people often can be distinguished by different ethnicities and nationalities, they are ontological equals before God in both creation and redemption. Race is not a biblical category but rather a social construct that often has been used to classify groups of people in terms of inferiority and superiority. Now, the, the comment I've heard on this isn't that they disagree with the, the content so much, is that I think people are assuming what's meant behind the words. Like maybe it's more of a tone issue. Um, it sounds very dismissive to some people. Um, that we're, basically we're not going to consider racial issues. That quit pulling the race card and quit bringing this up. And, um, and the left side just feels that acknowledge something here. Quit just dismissing this whole category of race. Um, number four, we deny that Christians should segregate themselves into racial groups or regard racial identity above or even equal to their identity in Christ. We deny that any divisions between people groups from an unstated attitude of superiority to an overt spirit of resentment, have any legitimate place in the fellowship of the redeemed. 
We reject any teaching that encourages racial groups to view themselves as privileged oppressors or entitled victims of oppression. While we are to weep with those who weep, we deny that a person's feeling of offense or oppression necessarily prove that someone else is guilty of sinful behaviors, oppression, or prejudice. This is probably the biggest paragraph I've seen talked about. So people on the left say, this seems to deny, ignore, or mitigate real victims of social forces of oppression. Now again, this is when you, you go back to words, you think, we reject any teaching that encourages racial groups to view themselves as privileged oppressors. I think we could easily say, yeah, just because you're part of a group doesn't automatically mean something, right? That you as an individual are experiencing the same thing as the group. And yet, th there doesn't seem to be at least a counterbalance statement that accepts that people of this particular group can feel, uh, experience oppression more than another group. They're just kind of, okay, saying something that's true, I get it, but there doesn't seem to be like a counter, but clearly there is oppression there. Um, so without that being there, people think, well, you're just, you're being dismissive. You're being indifferent. Not even specifically denying the words that are there. It's more crying out, what words aren't there that should be there? And maybe it's a tone issue. Now, again, in this class, I'm not concerned about you being able to get on a debate stage. I'm concerned about you sitting at a coffee table with a friend, Christian or unbeliever, and, and pastoring them. And so, at least in that context, I think tone matters a ton. Now, what it should matter in a statement, I'll leave that to you, because I know as you get more public, you've got to be a little more clear uh, about truth and error there. Um, to be a victim is not necessarily to be entitled. Um, so they talked about entitled victims as if if you claim to be a victim, you're being entitled. That's what's read into it. It doesn't say that explicitly, but that's what's read into it. And so... They really find this kind of language absolutely tone deaf to the discussion going on. And that paragraph has caused many Twitter feeds to blow up. Um, and it just, I don't know. It just seems like if we could get the people on both sides to sit down in a discussion, some of this ritual would go away. And I, you don't have that. You don't have an example a year into this thing of a good, sound discussion happening on both sides. You don't. It hasn't happened yet. Not that I've seen. And I've been looking. A few on the margins, on the edges. Uh, number five, the various cultures out of which we have been called all have features that are worldly and sinful. And therefore, those sinful features should be repudiated for the honor of Christ. We affirm that whatever evil influences to which we have been subjugated, subjected via our culture can be and must be overcome through conversion and the training of both mind and heart through biblical truth. We deny that the individuals and subgroups in any culture are unable by God's grace to rise above whatever moral defects or spiritual deficiencies have been engendered or encouraged by their respective cultures. And I think, again, this, this depends. Are you, are you looking at that paragraph from an individual level where we absolutely ought to impress upon every individual their personal responsibility for God of repentance, of faith, their hope in the gospel of transformation, of a new identity, um, of the things that really matter in the world, that justice will take place one day in heaven? Hallelujah. So at any individual conversation should always include that. Now, if you look at this paragraph from a, from a group standpoint, um, people claim, claim this is a James 2 paragraph. You are saying, 
be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Can that faith save you? That's a, that is, uh, to the left, that's a statement that reeks of faith without works. You can be, you, you can be transformed or, you know, you can do it. Um, so I think it kind of depends, in my opinion, how you read that. It is what is intended in an individual level or at a group level. As if, if you're born in abject poverty, poof, it, you can just make it better. Um, I'm not saying that's what they intended, but that's how it's read. So, some background. That's where this whole series came from, was reading that statement last year. And lots of conversations with my friends. All right, on to critical theory. Also on the back part of your... Um, now, I don't, I'm not an expert on this. I'm pretty new at this stuff. I'm not going to assume that what I'm going to critique today is part and parcel of critical theory, or if it's just a bad extreme of it. Um, so I'm kind of talk as if it is part and parcel, but if that's not true, then I, I'm going to try to be really specific out what my concern is, where I think some of these philosophies are absolutely outside of orthodoxy. Um, and, you know, people use terms differently all the time. We talked about that with socialism and whatever. Someone might use a term or Marxism. Um, my main reference I gave you there, Neil Shenvey. Um, basically, I'm just going to not quite copy-paste, but summarize his summary. Um, I'm not going to recreate the wheel here. Um, but he's got some great articles on this stuff. Um, and just because you don't know the term critical theory, critical theory, just because someone you know doesn't use those terms or have any historical knowledge, obviously that doesn't mean they haven't been influenced by it. So you can pick that one. Uh, that one, probably. One of those. <laughs> um, obviously our philosophies can be influenced, right? We don't, don't necessarily know the background, in other words. And just because someone uses the term social justice, don't assume... They're espousing critical theory. They sometimes are. In certain cases, like on campuses, they often are. Um, but don't assume too much. Sit down and have a conversation. And then, of course, the, the most common, the, talk about critical race theory. Critical theory can be applied to all sorts of categories. But usually it's applied to race. And then it's called critical race theory. All right, so some definitions. Here's one definition. Modern critical theory views reality through the lens of power. Each individual is seen either as oppressed or an oppressor, depending on their race, class, gender, sexuality, and a number of other categories. Oppressed groups are subjugated, not by physical force or even overt discrimination, but through the exercise of hegemonic power, the ability of dominant groups to impose their norms, values, and expectations on society as a whole, relegating other groups to subordinate positions. I'll read that again at the end. Well, let's parse through some of that. So the first term I want to talk about is Marxism. So Marxism was an economic theory, right? So what Marx did, he separated people into basically the, I don't remember the, the bourgeois, whatever the, the real terms were, but basically you've got the workers and the management, the owners. So everything was seen in economic terms. And obviously the management, the owners, they owned everything and they oppressed the working class. And what he wanted to do was destroy classes altogether, right? Let's... He had a nirvana society in mind that everyone would be equal and that the workers, because their input into the, their labor, into the value of the product or whatever, was more valuable than the management, that they would sh then share in that. And so this, this idea that everyone would be, it'd be a classless society and a neutral society. And so, but he, he thought of people in strict groups and wanted you as an individual to think of yourself as part of a group. And so kind of, destroyed individuality in a way. 
Now, we know the irony of that is you never got to classless society. You just created a different class, a political class. Um, you got into communism. Uh, but basically, people would call critical theory cultural Marxism. So instead of economic categories, we're going to have some other group, race, gender, or class, um, economic level. And now you think of yourself not as individuals, um, but as members of a different group. And so you've got your race, gender, your job, um, country of origin, whatever. And now you're not seen as an individual. You're now part of this group. But, you know, intersectionality is the idea that this defines you. I'm now part of this race, this gender, this job, or this class, this group, this group. So it's the intersection of all these group thinks. Um, so critical theory very much talks in these terms, um, and that you must, you must lose your identity into the group and assume the identity of the group of whatever you're in. Even, you know, there's, there's not much ability for you to be different from that group to be a brown face with a brown voice, the kind of quote that we had last week. Um, you have got to conform to that group identity because it's better for all. It's better for the society is, is the belief that your individualism is getting in the way. Now, obviously, when people use the term Marxism, they might mean different things, so you always have to be careful on terms. Uh, Muller says this, Marxist theory can be boiled down to identifying all the structures of authority and of order in society as repressive. And so hegemonic power, the ruling class ideas permeates the culture's value system so that it dominates all thought and discussion without conscious awareness and suffocates any dissenting opinions by making them seem weird or aberrant. The ability of a dominant group to impose its norms, values, and expectations on the culture. Therefore, those of minority historically oppressed groups are automatically oppressed individuals. And so once you have these classes, these groups that you start thinking of, now you look at power structures. So within race, you obviously have, you know, white versus whatever. Particularly we talk about white versus black in our country. It's interesting, I saw a, a, a movie this last week that was about the Spanish colonization of Nigeria. And it was fascinating. Same thing. Different history, no slavery, but it was colonization, so a different, but same thing. There's a majority structure, a minority structure. These things play out themselves out differently in history in different places. Um, gender, obviously, you've got males dominating, female, you've got whatever, you know. So now within these groups, you have a hegemonic power, which just means it's a power that basically affects everything. Um, consciously or unconsciously, um, there's got to there's obviously some truth to this. A, a culture with a majority whatever is going to have a certain expectations and values because that's the majority. Their concern is that that expectation now represses anyone who's in the minority, um, which isn't necessarily a numbers thing. It might just be people who have never had power. I have friends who are from Bolivia, and they were from the European class that her, their parents went there, and they were this ruling class, these white Europeans ruling Bolivia over the 90% um, local Bolivians. 
And then there was an uprising. They had to leave, and they're, they're Christians here. And it's really fascinating hearing the story about all. Now Bolivia is, is horrible now because the, the ruling class or the non-ruling class took over, but they weren't prepared. You know, they weren't trained. They don't have education. They're, they can't run the government. But you can understand that their desire to have their country back, and yet it was done in a way that's really destructive to themselves. But anyway, that stuff happens. So you have these, you have these power structures. And so critical theory is all about recognizing what group you're in so you can, you want to reverse the power balances. That's the other irony to me here is the desire to negate the power balances, serve as neutral, turns into a reversal of power structures. So the idea of undoing power actually just changes into a new power structure. And so the idea of white privilege can never be repented of, never be forgiven of, until it's no longer the majority culture. That's the only solution here. I'm jumping ahead of myself. But you, you, can, you can see as you start to have a philosophy that shapes everything around you that really becomes a worldview, it starts, every, everything you look at comes through this lens. And I know I'm probably being a little unclear, so I'll keep going and, and have to come back to this. Some of Basically, when we talk about intersectionality, we're talking about people who are systematically disadvantaged. And so basically, there's actually charts out there that rate you by your level of lack of privilege or your level of privilege. And so lesbian, black, woman, obviously lesbian. <laughs> um, you know, you've got these four categories. You're at the top. We will listen to your voice. And this, this, is, this is where it becomes a problem. You are now automatically qualified to speak first and to speak the loudest. White men, sorry, you're at the bottom. But we're not sorry because you've enjoyed the power for centuries, so it's your turn. That's the kind of attitude that creeps up. And so, the, and you'll see this seeping in. I mean, you will absolutely seep this in on any re- news program you turn on this week. They may not overtly say it. They may not say I agree with it, but it's there. It's, it's subtle. It's behind that. How dare you? How can you speak on that? You're a white man. How can you speak on race? I've been told that in the last few months. You just need to be quiet for a few years. Okay? I mean, I, again, I'm trying to, to not react and say, okay, what do you really mean by that? What, where is that coming from? Uh, woke. Those are basically people who have, they've become alive and aware of social issues, and so they're over here. I've even felt this in my own journey this last year, like, it's an issue I care about that I didn't before, and my, some of my first reactions is, every one of you should care about it just like me, right? As if my position right now, which is floating, is the new standard, and, you know, you should be where I'm at after three months of study in 30 minutes of class. It's kind of like the cage stage of Calvinism. You, that's something you have to be aware of. As you start to care about something, you might even be right on it. But be pastoral about it. Yeah. Yeah, religion is best seen as a, another oppressor class. Yeah. <laughs> You're the pastor. Right. That statement is a power. Well, of course. Therefore, it's a self-defeating philosophy. Yeah. 
There's something called the Franklin School that a lot of this Marxism comes out of. So here are the premises. This might help hopefully unmuddy some of it. And this is just a summary. You can go jump on Shenvi Apologetics and read more. We can catch up a little bit next week when we run out of time. Here are the six premises that Neil puts out for critical theory. Number one, individual identity is inseparable from our group identity. If you're a black lesbian, here is your position. Thank you very much. Um, oppressors versus oppressed through hegemonic power. So everything is seen in those categories. Everything. Everything. Some issue comes up, immediately thinking, who's the oppressor, who's the oppressed? Where's the hegemonic power that we need to resist? Uh, fundamental moral duty is freeing groups from oppression. So that, that's why you see people be able to justify throwing bricks at people. Because in their mind, they are helping the oppressed group. They are doing actually a moral duty. They justify that themselves. And that's why they get very passionate. Once you think you have this, I mean, it's kind of like um, suicide bombers, right? I, I, I find it fascinating that never in that discussion is, is what they believe true. If what they believe is true, why are we condemning them? If, if, if it's true that they're killing the infidel, um, so same thing here. Violence is justified when you're doing a moral duty. A lived experience is more important than objective evidence. It's very much true. This is a very postmodern type of idea. We, they, they reject an objective standard. So what is just is helping the oppressed group fight the oppression. That's what's just. That is the standard of justice. It doesn't matter what subject we're talking about. Oppressor groups hide behind objectivity. So kind of what Tim just said. When you make a statement that has nothing to do with objective truth, um, that has to do with your oppressor group gaining hegemonic power through your... So while I said last week we need to be careful about being indifferent with our statistics as we talk to people, just throwing them out at people and not thinking of people as people, statistics are meaningless to this group. Meaningless. Because those came up from the white men. Those, are, those come from the police. We can't trust them. Yeah, some of that might be true. I'm not even throwing out all the concept, but just nothing. There's no objectivity. There's no truth claims. It's it's. Critical theory is all. You said only one. It's all white men in France. <laughs> uh, and then intersectionality. It, we're always talking. Okay. Here's some of the positives. Again, don't throw everything out. There's something about the image of God in these people is crying out for justice, so let's try to find it and help them find it and steer them off of the cliff. Race is a social construct. We talked about that. It's not legitimately natural biological construct. That's a good thing. That, they claim that. It's a social construct, and that's good. Hegemonic power is real. We would all agree with things like secularism, naturalism, and relativism that permeate our academies right now, our, our universities. There's a power. There's, there's an influence there that has completely taken over academic institutions, um, or false standards of beauty and secular, of sexuality like Hollywood, entertainment industry. There's just a cultural expectation. So you can, hegemonic power as a, as a term, as a phrase, as a reality, I don't think we need to deny. It's just a matter of when is it true, how much of an excuse can that be, that type of thing. Uh, perspective is important to consider, right? Don't, we all interpret even the scriptures through our life experiences. There is an objective truth, but we're always, again, we just have to recognize that. And other people do the same. 
And know that when someone's coming at you on a discussion, there's probably a lot of history behind that passion. And so as a as someone who wants to pastor people and mentor and disciple people, get to that heart. Don't just stick on an issue. Not all discussions of racism, sexism, and social justice are cultural Marxism. Again, just because the terms are used or the categories are done, that doesn't mean everybody's over here. There's probably a lot of good stuff going on here that discussions we need to have. Some may adopt the language but not mean what, what you hear or might be unaware of the logical implications of what they're espousing. That's another thing. It's like the person I sat down with a few months ago, she was saying stuff that's straight out of here. And I don't think she has any clue where that came from. No idea. You know what you just said was actually the racist thing. Um, but again, I want to have a discussion. Someone can oppress without intending to. That's true. Again, there is a difference between guilt and responsibility. There's a difference between wanting to do what's good for someone, and you don't necessarily have to see that as a correction of something you've done in the past. Um, you can offend without trying to be, and you're still responsible. Um, maybe less responsible than obviously an intent, but don't just hide, well, I didn't intend anything. You might have been lazy about it. Uh, here's the concerns. When critical theory, so in as much as critical theory is a worldview, that's when we are certainly over the line. What do I mean by worldview? Worldview is something that consumes everything else. It asks the big questions. Who are we? What is our fundamental problem? What's the solution to that problem? What's the moral duty in light of these answers? That's a worldview. So you can only have one worldview. Now, we're fallen creatures. We, we kind of, we're Jews who act like Gentiles and Christians who act like the world. And, you know, so, but in truth, when critical theory becomes a worldview, it has to necessarily compete with a Christian worldview. You can't serve two masters, right? And because it's a worldview, it's all-encompassing. Just like, you know, when I consider what job I'm going to do, what I'm going to do for my wife this week, um, how I'm going to react to my neighbor, I'm constantly, in, in my mind, my, in my sanctified mind on a good day, everything's through my Christian values. Everything's through my understanding of the scriptures, my obligations as a neighbor and as a husband, um, my leaning on God's grace for forgiveness. Everything comes through. I, that's constantly on my mind. I think that's what it means to pray without ceasing. I, I, it, I can't even get away from it. And it, whenever I do, I find out I need to repent because I just lived in my own skin. Well, that's what's happening for these people in this worldview. Everything is about this. Everything. All of life is about power structures and group identity. Everything. So it's constantly affecting everything they do. And they, that's why they can just kind of seem wacky at times. Just like, there's no logic. There's no reason to get to where you're at. But when you live this stuff day in and day out and it seeps your mind, and, you know, like something like, say, modern psychology. There could be some useful insights in modern psychology. I think most of us would agree with that. We're not just going to say, nope, I don't want to know what the doctor said. And yet, if that overrides what we believe about the scriptures and what the scripture says about sin and responsibility, whoa, we've gone too far, right? There's some tools. You, there's, there's analytical things you can do about, I'm going to focus here. If, if I struggle with anxiety, I'm going to focus on this object. I'm going to think logically through something. There, there's these tools that counselors and psychologists use that no reason we have to be against those. It's probably even something in yoga. They can take. I'm waiting for a laugh. All right. The SBC is arguing over, can, is critical theory necessarily wrong, a worldly philosophy, or can it be used as a, quote, analytical tool, whatever that means. Those are some of the languages that they're studying right now. Um, as a worldview, it looks at oppression, 
to liber- so we want to move from oppression to liberation. That's all of life. As opposed to creation to fall to redemption in a Christian worldview. Everything for them is figuring out how to break out of these shackles and get to liberation. And your moral duty is to help people do that. Lived experience becomes your authority over the Bible. We've talked about that. Um, it seeks to justify, not by faith, but by repentance through social justice wokeness. Your, your way of becoming woke is to accept my view of the world. If you're white, shut up. Um, let's, let's try to break down society. We're just going to crush it all. That's Marxism. We're going to just undo everything. And eventually it's going to get better. Trust me. Um, and that's, that's their life of penance, basically. Uh, I'll save some of this other stuff. I think. So next week I want to turn to, we'll talk about some, maybe some of the other more helpful things that, that this side is saying that we need to deal with. I want to summarize the, um, the series from a gospel um, centrality, kind of a filter. Let's go back and hit some of these big level issues and what, okay, what is a gospel response here? What's the way of, of thinking through this from a gospel perspective? And summarize, and then kind of tee it up for discussion. Um, once we get into the building in September, August, September, we'll see. Um, there will be a broader discussion on, okay, what does Ministry of Spring Meadows mean now? What might it mean now? We just want to mark that, that occasion with something that many of us have prayed for and longed for for a long time. So, does that confuse everybody enough? All right. Dan, would you mind closing us with prayer? Father, we thank you that you sent your son to come down to the world to be the atonement for our sins, both our personal sins, and Lord, we thank you that you look forward to a day when all will be one, that day when the kingdom will come, every tear is wiped away, and every injustice is cured. Father, as people who reflect the heavenly reality now, you tell us in the word that we are seated in the heavens. Help us in the here and now to see how in practical ways we can reflect that heavenly reality in our day-to-day here. Simple words we might love on you. Forgive us of our sins, prepare us for worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.